Last week we started a new series which we have entitled My Anchor Holds. Using these verses out of Hebrews 6 that Austin just shared with us and the book of Psalms to go beyond a biblical theology of suffering into a biblical practice of suffering. Jesus said to us in John 16.33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, the question is not whether or not you will face hardships or difficulties or tribulations or storms. We know for a fact that you will. And I know that many of you are walking through many different challenges this morning as we gather together. And so that it is our aim this morning and through this whole series to put before us a sure and steadfast anchor and a hope so that we would see a path to walking through suffering. For if we're all called to that, We need to be aware of the way through it so that we can survive it. So whether you're there right now or not, it is our hope to equip you with a practice of being anchored, a practice we see routinely through the book of Psalms. Friends, I love the book of Psalms because it's filled with prayers that are inspired by God. Meaning God gave men the words to say, and they're prayed to God, and yet they're totally fraught with human emotion. They are filled with fear, and they're filled with anger and desperation and doubt, and not all of them even resolve in peace. It is a crazy book of the Bible that we don't lean into enough. But one of the things we find in the book of Psalms is that a vast majority of them are anchored. And what you find in the Psalms is this moment where the psalmist is declaring almost a hopelessness of what they're walking through. And then you find this moment that beyond the wind and beyond the waves and beyond the storm, the author seems to find the hand of God reaching out and taking a hold of him just as Jesus took a hold of Peter. They find an anchor. We'll see that this morning in our text. We'll be in Psalm 3 this morning. So I want to invite you to pull out your Bible or open your app, whichever way you do it. If you don't have one, there's a nice Red Pew Bible sitting in front of you. I'll make it easy. I'll put the page numbers up there for you so you can follow along. We think that's important. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's what it says, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. This is a psalm written by King David. We know that because the header attributes it to him. And what we find is David in the middle of a storm. He says, how many are my foes? Another version says, how numerous are my enemies? 
They're rising against me. They're attacking me. And more than even a physical attack, they're challenging his salvation and God's ability to deliver him. So it's not just a physical attack he's under, a physical storm. There's a spiritual storm that's accompanying it. Have you ever faced anything like that? You know, as we walk through all these psalms, we'll see lots of different kinds of storms. But this is a particular one that David walks through, feeling like the world was against him. And that everyone he knew was against him. The distinct feeling of being alone. So whether that's you this morning, whether you feel that tension, whether you ever walk through this specifically, you will find that these same thoughts, these same emotions show up in our lives in lots of different places. And here we don't have to wonder about the context of this psalm because the header also gives us a context. So what the header says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I don't know if you know that whole story or not, but it's found in the book of 2 Samuel. It starts in chapter 17 or 15 and resolves around chapter 18. We'll look at that text here in a moment, but to understand what it looked like for David to flee from Absalom, you actually have to start further back in the story of David. You might remember one of the more famous stories of David, a man after God's own heart, that David saw a woman lying on a on the roof of a building and he pursues her and ends up having an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba and she gets pregnant. So David, in an attempt to cover all of this up, has her husband sent to the front lines and when he arrives there has the army withdraw so that Uriah the Hittite is killed in battle. You see grievous sin in the life of David. And God was completely aware of it. It's always fascinating to me that one of the more grievous sinners we find in the scripture is the man after God's own heart. And in 2 Samuel 12, David's good friend Nathan is sent by God to confront him for his sin because God knew what had happened. This is one of the things that Nathan says to him, 12.10 in 2 Samuel. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So what we find in the text is David, the man after God's own heart, gave himself over to sin, and it is totally worth pointing out, by the way, that God seems to take this sin personally because when God reflects on the situation, he says, because you despised me, that you chose this because you weren't just rejecting me, you were despising me when you chose sin. And friends, we do need to be reminded that there are consequences for sin. Even consequences for sin you're forgiven of. We would find if we studied through the Psalms that Psalm 51 is attributed to David and his confession of his sin. Psalm 32 is attributed to David and the the feeling he gets after he feels forgiven and his jubilation and celebration and the restoration he has from the Lord. And yet there's still consequences. Why? 
Because people watch us sin. People learn by our willingness to sin. They And, and God might forgive us, but other people, well, they've watched these things happen. And it plays out in our lives. And so one of the consequences that God says to David will be before him is that the sword will not depart from your house. So then when you get to 2 Samuel 15, we shouldn't be too surprised to see what's happening. Because what you find is, is that some of what David sowed, he begins to reap. And his struggle with his son Absalom starts, at least for David, since in 2 Samuel 15. Let me read it to you. This is that story. After this, am I okay? I'm bumping. All right, I'll press through it and we'll see what happens. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Verse 2, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the wall of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Verse 4, Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What you find in Second Samuel 15 is Absalom begins to betray his father, deriding the character of his father and propping himself up to be more reliable, more trustworthy, and better than his dad. But that's only where it starts. It, it tells you that he was stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. The text tells us that Absalom does this for four years. And for four years he subverts the authority and the leadership of his dad slowly and methodically, and the whole country begins to turn against his father. So that by verse 13... When the Israelites who are, who are supporting Absalom start chasing him or start chasing David and David is running, fleeing from his son. Absalom trying to capture his father, trying to kill his father and to make matters even worse. Absalom had turned many of David's friends against him. We see that picture in verses 30 and 31. But David went up from the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was, and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This just shows you the position David is in as he flees his son, 
Absalom. You get this picture that there are a whole sets of years where his son is turning against him, where he's rejecting his authority, and he's turning all the nation against him. Even one of his most trusted allies, Ahithophel, turns over to Absalom's side, and you start to see the loneliness of David. You start to see his pain as he is weeping and mourning, and we see that he has found himself quite a storm, And if we're brutally honest about it, we would recognize and see that he caused it. That he caused this storm that he's now walking in. A great reminder for us, for all the challenges and trials we can endure, many of them we bring on ourselves. And yet even in those storms, even in the storms we're responsible for. Even in the storms we bring upon ourselves, even in those moments, as believers in Jesus Christ, there's an anchor for us. There is hope. For David, running and fleeing, writing out a psalm to express all that he's walking through, all that he's dealing with, finds an anchor. I want to remind us again of our theme verse, Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We walked through that passage last week. And if you weren't here, you'd see the author of the book of Hebrews writing and using these nautical terms to tell you that you can find an anchor in a storm. But more than that, to see that Jesus was a forerunner. And we walked into that last week to understand that oftentimes a forerunner was a little boat that would go before a big ship that would go into a harbor in the midst of a storm to drop the anchor for the bigger ship, that Jesus goes before us to anchor us into the very presence of God. And that's huge for us if you've believed in Jesus Christ. If he is your hope to know that he's gone before you in his death, he's gone before you in his resurrection, and he's gone before you in his ascension to anchor you into the very presence of God so that in any storm, whether you caused it or not, in any storm you can be anchored. And for David, we see an anchor in verse 3. Because beyond the wind and beyond the waves, he sees God. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. For in the midst of this loneliness, in the midst of his despair, David was cued in on and was anchored to the truth. In a moment that could have been about desertion and loneliness, and I have no doubt that he felt those things and that he expressed those things, 
But in this moment, he clings to the Lord and he clings to the truth and he confesses three things about God that are true. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. That's worth reminding you that David was a warrior and he commanded an army, which is to say that the imagery of protection, particularly a defensive protection, would have been a lot of his the way his mind worked. He would have understood the purpose of a shield. So when he points to it, he knows what he's talking about. And what he's claiming here is that the person and the character of God is his protection. That's who God is that's keeping him safe. It's who God is that will carry him. It's who God is that will steady him in the midst of the storm. The New Testament will tell you the very same thing. Paul, writing in the book of Ephesians, teaching on the armor of God, says this in Ephesians 6. In all circumstances. That means storms. In all circumstances. That means storms even you cause. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Do you see the sufficiency of God in that verse? That in all circumstances, all the flaming darts can be extinguished. So in the midst of any storm, you're called to take up the shield of faith. Why? Because Satan is shooting all kinds of lies at you, especially in the midst of a storm. And these lies come out as flaming darts flying in your direction. And in those moments, according to Paul, your protection is your faith. It's your belief in the truth. It's your belief and your firm belief in who God really is and what God has really declared to be truth about you. And this is the key part regardless of what you think or feel. Because that's what a storm does to us. It begins to move us around and we lose track of how we feel and we start feeling all these emotions and we're not sure what's real and what's true. And we're to be anchored into the Word of God. To say, despite how I feel, despite how I might be thinking about this situation, what do I know is concretely true? And that's what you anchor yourself to. That is faith. And that's what a shield of faith does. It allows us to hold on to a God who's declared truth regardless of how we feel about it. To cling to him. To look at him. And so David, in this situation, proclaims that the Lord is a shield about him and that the Lord is his glory. To say that you are my glory is to say that you are my identity. It's to say that you are my reputation. It's to say that you are my everything. 
It's to cast everything in light of who you are instead of just what my eyes perceive. It's to know and believe Romans 8.28. That's really what it is from a New Testament perspective. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Which is to say that there will be moments in our lives when in desperation we need to proclaim and profess. God, I have no idea what's going on. God, my boat is shaking uncontrollably, but I know that you're going to work this out for my good. That's to see God as our glory. It's that implicit trust to say, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what's happening. I feel really uncomfortable about all this, but I trust you. And I know that I know that you're going to work all of this out for my good somehow. And finally, David says, you are the lifter of my head. In the ancient world, for a king to lift up the head of his servant would have been an act that David would have known well. To lift up the head of a servant would be to to look at somebody who's downcast and to express acceptance, to express approval. It would be a movement of the king towards restoration and towards redemption. What David is declaring in this moment is that the Lord will restore him. It's the Lord that would redeem him. And what you see is David putting his full confidence in the Lord. And if we were to take Psalm 3, verse 3, and and look at the whole thing as one, what you'd see as a perspective is one that transcends the situation that he finds himself in to concretely place himself in the hand of God. To say, you are my protection. You're my hope. You're my glory. You're my reputation. I trust you. I believe in you. I know it's all going to work out because of it. And you're my redemption. David's not looking for the situation to resolve themselves as his hope. David's not looking for this situation to, to turn around completely so that he can have hope. No, he's placing his hope in the nature and the character of God. We see that as he continues to write. We see that movement that he makes, this anchoring that we find in verse 3, we see that played out in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. That David cries out to God, and that God responds. God hears him. And he answers him. And friends, that is a biblical truth that we've got to rest upon. I remember years ago, I was walking through a really hard season of my life, and I came through the reading in the, the Gospels, and I came to the sentence where Jesus starts to pray after Lazarus 
before Lazarus has been raised from the dead and Jesus prays, Lord, I thank you that you hear me and I know that you always do. And man, did I lose it. To think that Jesus himself had to rest in that truth. God, I know you hear me and I know you always hear me. Jesus had just lost his friend and he's resting in the truth of who God is and his character. I know you always hear me. I know it. That's what David is declaring here. That even though he's here and God's here, they're still anchored together. They're tethered. And because of that, David is able to rest. Still in a storm. The context still holds as we walk into verse 5. The waves are still high. The wind is still up. But look at the peace of David as he's declared truth and is resting in truth, not a situation. He says in verse 5, I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And what a better picture is there of just implicit trust in God, especially when you have an army chasing you, than to go, I can sleep. I can lay down and I render myself completely vulnerable. Why? Because I'm trusting in you. Because you're my shield. I lay down, I slept, and I woke up again. They didn't kill me while I was asleep. He doesn't seem surprised. Why? Because it was the Lord that sustained him. I have a friend who used to always say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. And it is so true. That sometimes just to rest, just to rest, is a spiritual declaration of our trust in him. Because in that moment, we've got to say, my worries aren't helping. My anxiety is not getting anywhere. God, I'm handing it all to you, and I'm going to hug my pillow and trust. And I'm just affirming for you that that can be a very holy moment. That can be a very spiritual act of worship to say, God, man, I'm trusting all of this into your hand and it's so thoroughly in your hand that I'm going to take a nap. That's what we find here. David resting in the midst of a storm, trusting him. It's that very same picture of Jesus asleep in a boat, not caring that the boat's shaking. David's now practicing that here, resting in the sufficiency of God. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Tells you the storm's not over. It tells you that he's trusting in the midst of the storm. Now, I've been through some crazy things in my life, but never have I actually been able to pray there are thousands of people set against me. Like there's a real sense here of the reality of his situation. It's not changed. As he starts to conclude the psalm, he's resting in who God is. His situation has not changed. And he resolves it in the next two verses. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. We don't need to pray that, by the way. There's a whole funny conversation to be said with what a Christians do with imprecatory psalms. We can have that conversation another day. 
and take a while. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing to your people, Selah. Do you know how that resolves this psalm? I would remind you, when he puts this storm before us, when he talks about all the people chasing him and all the people after him, what were they declaring? They were declaring there is no salvation for you. They're declaring there's no deliverance for you. And in verses 7 and 8, David reverses that, reverses what he's what's being claimed against him, and he clings to the truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not theirs to pronounce. He is rested, he's confident in the Lord, such that he refutes the lie of verse 2 that his enemies were speaking. And he rests in truth. Friends, as we walk through these Psalms, they're not prescriptions. At no point in here am I ever going to assert to you that if you walk through a hard challenge, pick up Psalm 3, read it, and it'll be resolved by the end for you. That'd be lunacy. However, we do need to begin to pick up the pattern. That's what studying the Psalms does for us. It allows us to begin to trace a pattern that as storms pick up, where's the anchor? Where's the anchor of the character and the nature of God that I need to cling to? Where do I profess truth? Where do I push back on the lies of the evil one to declare what is true about God, that I could be anchored in that truth, that I could survive that storm? We want to begin to work out to train our spiritual muscles of anchoring. So we'll see these patterns lay out. What am I walking through? What is true? So we'll understand that our hearts are wicked, that our minds are easily deceived, but the word of God is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Friends, we rest in the word of God, for it is our truth, and it is our anchor. It is that which will tether us to the heavenly Father to keep us steady, when it all begins to shake. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I can't fathom that there's anyone here this morning who's being chased by thousands. And yet, Father, I know there are storms aplenty. I know there are marriages that are struggling. I know there are parents struggling with kids. I know there are kids struggling with parents. I know there are relationship difficulties, there are work problems, there's underemployment, there's all kinds of things going on in our body. Father, Satan is shooting flaming darts and arrows at us constantly. Father, would you build us up, would you equip us to be able to defend ourselves from Satan by clinging to your truth? by anchoring us in who you are, by knowing that Jesus Christ has gone before us to anchor us to God the Father to steady us in these storms. Jesus, would you be our great hope? Jesus, would you walk through this with us? Jesus, you said in this world we'll have tribulations, but you have overcome the world. 
Father, our hope is not that these storms would end. Our hope is that you've overcome the world. Jesus, you are our shield. You are our glory. You're the lifter of our heads. It's in you we put all of our hope this morning. Amen.